Today, we are continuing our uh, <clears throat> series on do this, uh, things that we have been told by God to do, by Jesus to do. And uh, this morning, I'm going to talk to you about baptism, which is uh, sort of appropriate since I just did one. Uh, y'all, he is so tall that when I put him back, his head hit the back step on the back side, and I had to shift him and put him down. So, I don't know. I don't know. He might want to feel for a lump back there. I don't know. Um, but uh, I tell you, it's, it's, um, it's great to be able to follow up uh, with what the Lord has commanded us to do in uh, the ordinance of baptism. Um, <clears throat> I think that baptism is misunderstood by a lot of people. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, they don't take it seriously. Some of you may have seen the video on YouTube or floating around the interwebs somewhere of the pastor who is in the baptistry and he's talking about the kid he's going to baptize and here comes the kid flying through the air cannonballing into the baptistry. Now the pastor being a pastor had to laugh it off, but if I had been that pastor, after unlooping my belt, um, I would have refused to baptize that child. Because baptism is not something that we play around with. Baptism is worship. Baptism is an expression of what has happened in our lives. And it is not something that should necessarily be joked about. I know I sound like my grandfather. It's just not funny. You know. Oh, you know, I preached this last hour, and, and the great thing about when, when I preach is you can sit in both services and get an entirely different sermon each time because my ADD is just that bad, okay? So, but um, I have been uh, in churches where people show up in the baptistry, show up at the church that I'm at in the baptistry, with a snorkeling mask on. Not funny. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that takes away from the reverent worship of baptism and what it means. And so this morning, I want us to talk about what it means uh, to have baptism. We're going to start in uh, Matthew chapter 3 with verses 13 through 17. Okay? It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Um, you know, it's interesting that Jesus does this before he starts his ministry, and he comes down to the Jordan River where John is baptizing. Now, John has been telling people, I baptize you with water, but there is going to be one who comes and baptizes you with the, with the Spirit and with fire. Okay? He says, I am not even worthy of unbuckling his sandal. That's, that's how much above me he is. 
And then Jesus shows up and says, baptize me. <laughs> Can you imagine? You've built this person up, and you've built them up and built them up, and then they come to you. Well, one of the reasons why Jesus did this was to legitimize John's ministry. John had his disciples. He had his followers. He was telling people what was going to happen. And then when Jesus shows up, just exactly what John says begins to happen. So he is giving legitimacy to John's ministry. It also legitimizes Jesus' ministry. Because at that time, without an understanding of what Jesus was there for, until Jesus revealed his purpose in coming, folks would look at, he was baptized by John, so he has John's blessing. John was the big name of the day. And then, of course, John is saying, I must decrease, he must increase, right? So when Jesus goes to be baptized by John, the first thing it does is it legitimizes John's ministry but it also legitimizes Jesus' ministry to men because that's what they're going to look at if they weren't there. If they were there, the next thing that happens is pretty much a legitimization. Is that right? Is that a word? A legitimization of Jesus' ministry. Take a look at verse 16. It, <laughs> I knew this guy one time who um, told me that um, we were talking, I don't remember what it was we were talking about, but he said, look, if it's not mentioned in the Bible, then it's not scriptural. And I don't believe it. And I said, oh, so then you don't believe the Trinity. He goes, well, of course I do. Well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Nowhere. The word Trinity was coined by one of our early church fathers named Tertullian. Not a great name. Tertullian. And he was the one who came up and, and spoke this idea of three gods in one. Okay? He also was responsible for voicing the understanding of Jesus being completely human and completely divine, the two in one. Okay? So he was, he was a pretty big name. He, uh, he was a pretty important guy. But the word Trinity is not in the Bible. He came up with it but the aspects of the Trinity are. Look here in verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, God the Son, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. Holy Spirit. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. God the Father. All three persons of the Trinity. Also, if you look in, this is just a little fact. You get this for free, okay? If you look in Renaissance art about Jesus, usually you'll see a dove. And that is the depiction of the Holy Spirit based on this verse. That was what they thought that the Holy Spirit was, was a, an actual dove. But it says it alighted on him like a dove. So if you look at Renaissance art and you see a dove in there in flight, that usually represents the Holy Spirit. See all the things you learned from me? Hmm, yeah. Work that into conversation later. Um, so, here Jesus comes at the beginning of his ministry, and he is there for baptism. So, he is baptized, and as he comes up out of the water, the voice of the Lord speaks, the dove descends upon him, and uh, we are seeing this as Jesus doing this in obedience to what God wants him to do to start his ministry. 
Now, let's look at the end of Jesus' ministry. If we take a look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, now, this is, this is something I've got, to, I've got to say. You see that, look, go to verse 19. Okay, therefore go. This is where most preachers start the Great Commission. This is not where the Great Commission begins. I had a professor, he said, whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? Smart, huh? All right, so he's telling them, go and make disciples of all nations. Why is he telling them that? Go back to 18. Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That is an important part of the Great Commission, guys, because if Jesus didn't have all authority in heaven and earth, he can't give the commission that we read in verses 19 and 20. Okay? So a lot of preachers, they do that for expedience sake. That's always just been one of my little nitpicky things that I cannot read or preach on the Great Commission without recognizing the authority of Christ to give it. So let's do that. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus is giving this, um, this commission for them to go out and make disciples. He doesn't really tell them how to do it, though, does he? He tells them what to do, but he doesn't tell them how to do it. You know why? Because for three and a half years, he's been teaching them by experience. He has been making them his disciples. And what he's telling them now is, go out and do with others exactly what I've done with you. Okay? He says, go out and teach them, baptize them. Uh, and, and one of the things that he is that is inherent in that whole process of making disciples is, at the end of the time, sending those disciples out. So Jesus spends three and a half years with his disciples, and he sends them out to make more disciples. So they gather around them disciples, and they teach them. And at the end of that, their training time, they are sent out to make disciples. They go and make disciples, and then they tr train them. And at the end of that training time, they send them out to go and make disciples, and on and on and on. You see, somewhere along the line, we've lost that. We have forgotten what it means to go and make disciples. Somewhere along the line, the erroneous thinking has occurred that that is the preacher's job. I have been the pastor of three churches. And every one of them, whenever I would try to get a visitation program going, whenever I would try to get people to go out and talk to people about Christ... They would try it for a while. We had a, oh, we had a uh, visitation program that lasted all of three weeks one time. It was, yeah, it was intense. And uh, they wouldn't do it. And do you know why? Because that's your job, preacher. That's what we pay you for. No. There was a Dutch philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. That's a good name for a kid, too. Soren Kierkegaard said that we have an idea about how church should be. And this is it. That the preacher is on stage. Well, yep. And the people are in the the, the people of the congregation are sitting in a like sitting in a theater. They are the audience. And God 
is in the wings whispering the lines to the preacher to be spoken to the people. Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, that's exactly what we're doing right now. You're sitting there, I'm standing here, and if I'm following what God is telling me to do, he is, te- he is giving me what to say. But Kierkegaard says that's not how it's supposed to be. You see, the way it's supposed to be is the people are on stage. And they are performing for God who is in the audience. And it is the pastor who is in the wings giving them the words to say and the things to do and speak. You see, we're not here for entertainment. We're here for worship. We're here for the equipping of the saints. And I have heard, not here, but I have heard at other churches, somebody, I actually had one of my own church members uh, walk out and tell, um, I almost lost my job for this. I led our church. We had a lot of infighting. And I got up there what, Sunday morning, and I dismissed the choir. I said, we're not, we're not having service today. Sunday morning, we're not having service today. There's a lot of problems in this church right now, and they need to be brought before the Lord, and we are going to take this time, and we are going to pray. Did you know that I had one lady leave there, and she said to one of the deacons before she left, I come to church to have my spiritual tank filled, and it wasn't filled today. I asked them to pray, to take the church time and seek God in prayer. How can you not get your spiritual tank filled by communicating with the Lord of the universe? You see, some people have it in their, in their thinking that church is supposed to be an entertainment for them. That they're supposed to come and the preacher's up here and he's talking and he gives them three points in a poem. And they go home feeling good about themselves because they have been entertained that morning. That is not the case at all. We come to church so that we can be equipped to serve God. It's not the preacher's job. It's all of our job. And it's from this passage of Scripture right here that our job description comes from. We are to make disciples. Not pay the preacher to do it for us. Well, I'll get down off that soapbox. I've got plenty more. But when we make disciples and we baptize them, or when we are discipled and we are baptized, we are doing baptism as an act of obedience to Christ. We are obeying Christ when we go through baptism. Why? Because he said to do it. That is part of the process of making disciples. It is an act of obedience. So let's let's look at Romans chapter 6. I want to follow up this thought with Paul's discussion of baptism. Now, Romans, the book of Romans was written by Paul and sent to the church in, wait for it, Rome. That's how it got its name. It is uh, sent to the church in Rome. And in that 
book, Paul is laying out his, uh, his theology. Okay? So basically, he's, he's introducing himself, himself to them and saying, when I come, this is what you can expect from me. This is what I'm going to preach. This is what I'm going to teach. This is what I'm going to do. All right? So he's giving them fair warning. All right? So in this, in verse 5, I'm sorry, in chapter 5, um, he is talking about how sin in our lives is an opportunity when we confess it and repent of it, is an opportunity to receive the grace of God, which is a great thing, right? However, Paul was a very smart man, and he knew that somebody was going to take this line of thinking to the extreme, okay? If sin is an opportunity for us to receive the grace of God, shouldn't we continue to sin more and more so that we can receive more and more of God's grace when we repent of it? That's the argument he takes up in chapter 6, verse 1, okay? So he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The next fill-in. Baptism is a symbol of our salvation. It is a symbol. Guys, let me tell you, there is nothing special about this water right here. Nothing. Comes out of a tap. Nobody says a prayer over it. We don't sprinkle pixie dust and glitter in it. We don't, we don't do anything. In fact, if you got here early, you would have seen that we had a garden hose running from the bathroom into that baptistry to fill it up. It was from the sink, not the toilet. There's nothing special about that water. It is a symbol. It is a symbol that when we go under the surface of that water, it is showing that we have died to our old ways. And when we come back up out of the water, just as Christ came out of that grave, we are being raised to a new life. Isn't that awesome? A new life. Well, I'm going to tell you all something that got me in trouble at one of my churches. Again, I seem to have a gift for it, y'all. Did y'all know that pigs don't sweat? That was it. It got me in trouble. Had somebody sitting behind one of the deacons said, and we go to church for this. That was the same couple that left because I preached in boots. I try not to take offense at it. I just laugh like Jane does. (laughs) Just laugh and walk away. But did you know that pigs don't sweat? When I was a kid, I'll get back to that. I really, there is a point for me saying it. When I was a kid, we would go to my Papa Sims's. He was my great-grandfather. And we would go to his farm for family get-togethers. We would go for Easter, Thanksgiving, Christmas. Easter was the time when we, he would move his cows from one field to another. And we would have Easter egg hunts out in the pasture, which added a level of difficulty. Yeah. 
Know what I mean? And then one year, the, the, one of the fathers, they would all go out and hide the eggs. We always had like a, you all remember those plastic legs eggs with the pantyhose in them, you know? And we would they would take those, they'd put a $20 bill in it, and they would hide it. And this one particular year, the fathers put it right on top of a cow patty. And all the kids saw it. They come streaking out the door for it, and they pull up short, and they're like, I'm not touching it. That's the family that I come from. That probably explains a lot for some of you. But my grandfather had a pigsty. And uh, when you walk out his door, you turn to the right, there's this barn right next to his pigsty. I loved those pigs. They were awesome. They were dirty. And they stunk. But there was just something funny about it. You know, going over there and just listening to them all over the place. See? And so, whenever we would pull up to my Papa Sims's, my mother would look at me, give me the sternest look. She'd point her finger right in my face. She goes, don't you go over to those pigs. Well, you know, as soon as she went in the house, what did I do? I went over to the pigs. I was amazed, though, that in that sty where they were, it wasn't a blade of grass. It was all mud and other stuff. Let's call it their evidence of existence, okay? And these pigs would roll around in that, and they'd get covered in it. And then they'd come up, and they'd want you to pet them. And, uh, no, I won't do that, but you're cool, but go away. Pigs don't have sweat glands. So in order to cool off, they roll around in that dirt, that mud, that evidence to cool off. But what many of you may not know is that pigs are very clean animals. And if given the choice between mud and water, a pig will choose water. Now think about this. When we are living in sin, that's like us living in that pigsty. We're just living in all that nastiness. And God, through Jesus, takes us out of that sty, cleans us up. I love 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. says he forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Cleans us up and puts us in a place where we can just have cool, clean water. Why would a pig go back into that? Yet how many times do we return to our sins? Jesus has taken us out of that sty. He has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. And what do we do but we head right back in to the dirt and stuff of that pigsty. Y'all, the argument might be made that pigs are smarter than us. Because how many times do we go back to the muck of our sin? It's not what we've been called to do. What we've been called to do, he says in verse 3, don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ, I'm sorry, uh, verse 2, says, by no means we are those 
who have died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? How can we continue to sin? When we have received the grace of God, when we have received forgiveness of those sins, and we go into the baptistry pool and we say for the entire community, this is what God has done for me. I have died to my old ways. I have risen to a new life. And then, a day or two later, we're right back to what we were doing before. Baptism needs to be more. Uh, It doesn't need to be more. We need to understand it as more than what we currently understand it as. New life is something that I'm familiar with. hope you are too. When I was in college, I was a youth minister at a little church down in Greene County, Georgia. And um, I had two boys in that group. They were brothers. Um, One was William. And uh, William was was shot and killed by his cousin uh, when I was away at seminary. Um, They were playing with a gun and it discharged and shot and killed William right in the chest. If you have guns, please lock them up. And if your parents have a gun, don't touch it. Richard and William were placed in the Georgia Baptist Children's Home for a period of time because they were, before I got there, they were breaking into homes and setting fire inside those homes in an attempt to burn them down. So they go into the Georgia Baptist Children's Home. Uh, I come there as youth minister, and maybe like three weeks later, they come home. So, you know, they've already got reputation as being bad kids, and they weren't. They weren't bad kids. And Richard, Richard accepted Christ while I was there. And he was the first person I ever baptized. (laughs) And then a couple of weeks after that, we went to camp, summer camp for a week. And as I'm standing there and I'm looking at my cabin assignments, they assigned each one of us some children to stay in our cabins. As I'm looking at my cabin assignments, I hear somebody over to the side of me and they go, Oh, great. I've got Richard. I went and found the camp director. I said, You need to take Richard out of that camp, out of that cabin, and put him in mine. I said, Richard has received Christ as his Savior, and I will not have another adult treating him like he was the Richard from last year. I said, He is a new creation. But if we keep treating him like he's that old kid, what will he do but go back to that kind of behavior? Nobody's going to give me a chance, so why should I even try? So they put Richard in my cabin for the week, which was good. Richard also, later, after I went, left there and went to seminary, I got word back that Richard had, um, had gotten a tattoo. And he was sitting in class in, in Sunday school. And there is no biblical basis for this. Hear what I'm saying. No biblical basis for this. This little girl sees the tattoo. It was on his leg and his shorts had ridden up when he sat down. She could see part of the tattoo. And she goes, you know you're going to go to hell for that. 
No biblical basis for that belief, y'all. And if you want to talk to me about it, I'll be happy to, happy to discuss it with you. I'll tell you exactly where it comes from. He looked at her and he said, Really? You see, I thought it was the love of Christ in my heart, not the ink in my skin that saved me and determined whether I was going to heaven or hell. And when I heard that, I thought, Man, Richard, you got it. Had the opportunity, the privilege to baptize that boy. And then a couple years ago, I got to perform his wedding. And uh, he's doing all right. He's doing all right. But baptism is a symbol of our new life. Coming back up out of that water. We are a new person. We are a new person from who we were before we met Jesus. Now, again, water doesn't save you. The decision to receive Christ as your Savior, that's what saves you. This is a symbol to let people know. And when you have uh, baptisms, we had it in the first service, we had it in this service, what happens? You invite people to come, right? Come see me get baptized. Come, and, and I'm being baptized on Sunday. I want you there. We tell our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our schoolmates, we tell everybody, hey, come, I want you to see me get baptized. Why? Because that is a public profession of our faith. That's our next fill-in. Baptism is a blank blank of our blank. It's a public profession of our faith. Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. But if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. Baptism is our public profession. It is our confession. We can't open up our heart, open up our chest and say, see, this is what God has done. We can't say, we can't show them the spiritual change that has occurred. But we can give them a picture of it. And when we go underneath that water, we're showing the community, I am dying to my sin. And we come up out of that water, we're showing the community of believers, I am a new creation through Christ. Now, it's even better if some of the people that you invite aren't Christians. And through that uh, process, they start to question, why do you do that? Why, why did they put you underwater? That seems kind of strange. Why do they have a pool right there, you know? And then you start talking to them about what baptism is and what it means and why it's important. And through that, perhaps, they can be saved. It's a public profession of our faith. It's a symbol of our salvation. It is an act of obedience to Christ. I remember there was a guy in my first church... Um, it's an interesting story. Uh, oh, this will. A lady in our church goes to the doctor, okay? And while she's there, she meets, meets this man. And he's a big old tall guy, right? And um, his liver is failing. He had, uh, I think he had hepatitis C or something like that. His liver was failing him. And they started talking about church. And he lived in the community where our church was. And so she comes back to the church and she says, you need to go visit this person and tell him about Jesus. And I was like, why didn't you? You know? So I go to his house. And as we're talking, I went with one of my deacons. We're talking to this guy. 
He's asking questions. We're telling him scripture. At the very end, I said, do you want to pray to receive Christ? And he says, well, I don't want to do it just because I want God to give me a liver. I said, Andy, don't worry about that. I said, if you come to Christ, you let him worry about the reasons why. But you come to Christ. And he started just crying. He said, then let's do it right now because part of me wants to accept him and part of me wants to tell you to get the blank out of my house. That struggle, that spiritual struggle. We knelt in that man's living room around his coffee table and he prayed to receive Christ. And about a month later, he got his liver. He never followed up with baptism until I went to visit him in the hospital and he said, Brother Parrish, that's what they call me down there, Brother Parrish, when I get out of this bed, you're going to baptize me. I said, what? He goes, I have waited too long. He said, I never should have let it go this long without getting baptized. And I said, well, now you know baptism doesn't save you. He goes, ah, I know all that. He said, but that's what I'm supposed to do in obedience to Christ, and I haven't done it. Y'all, he got out of the hospital. He had a big waterproof patch over the incision where they put his liver in, and he got in that baptistry, and we baptized him. We baptized him forward, not backward. But he understood how important it was to make that public profession of faith in obedience to Christ. Some of you this morning may be here and you have received Christ, but you have never followed up in baptism. Don't wait any longer. Can y'all see now why I get so upset with people doing foolish stuff in the baptistry? Yeah. It is an act of worship where we proclaim the goodness of Christ. Some of you may not have done that yet. Some of you may have accepted Christ and you never followed up in baptism. I want you to have that opportunity. Next Sunday, we've got a, a baptism class meeting next door. And if you can't make that one, we have one every month. But you can come to that class and you can learn what baptism really is and what it means. And then you can go into these waters. You can invite your friends and family. You can proclaim the goodness of God and be obedient to Him. Some of you may not know Jesus as your Savior. Some of you may be sitting here and you're saying, Baptism, I, I, have, to do, I have to accept Him first. Okay, we're going to do that right now then. I'd like everybody to close your eyes, bow your heads. If you're here this morning and you have never received Christ as your Savior, I want you to Repeat this prayer after me. Father, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that my sin separates me from you. Lord, I repent of my sins. I'm sorry for what I have done. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to come into my life Come into my heart. Begin changing me into the person that you want me to be. 
I give you my life. And I thank you for giving yours. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer, you are now a member of the family of God. If you just prayed that prayer, Scripture says that, that God, there are the, the angels in heaven rejoice over one person coming to Christ. If you prayed that prayer, there is a party going on right now because of that decision. If you made that decision today, I'd ask you to mark your connect card on the next steps or go back to the next step table at the back corner here and let, uh, let one, someone know back there and uh, we can talk with you and, and um, follow up with you. All right. Thank you so much for being here today and listening to me drone on about how awesome our God is. Isn't he wonderful? Amen.